0: Hello, and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 87, The Beast Out of the Sea. Out of the sea rises up a beast, full of the names of blasphemy, who, raging with the claws of the bear, and the mouth of the lion, and the limbs and the likeness of the leopard, opens its mouth to blaspheme the holy name, and ceases not to hurl its spears against the tabernacle of God, and against the saints who dwell in heaven. With fangs and claws of iron it seeks to destroy everything, to trample the world, to fragment beneath its feet. It has already prepared its rams to batter down the walls of the Catholic faith. Seize you, therefore, to marvel that it aims at us the darts of calumny, since the Lord himself it doth not spare. Seize you to marvel that it draws the dagger of contumely against us, since it lifts itself to wipe from the earth the name of the Lord. Rather that ye may with open truth withstand his lying and may refute his deceits with the proof of purity. Behold the head and tail and body of the beast of this Frederick, this so-called emperor. Such wrote Pope Gregory the Ninth in 1239. How did we get there? Is there a way back from this? Well, let's see. But before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons, and you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Robert W., Matthew S., and Brendan S., who've already signed up. Last week, we ended with Pope Gregory IX excommunicating Frederick II in the spirit of glowing anger, as Matthew Paris described it. Excommunication was neither unexpected nor exceptional in the 13th century. This is Frederick's second time. Of his seven predecessors as emperor, four of them had been excommunicated. Otto IV, Frederick Barbarossa, Henry V and Henry IV. The other three had been threatened with excommunication. Of his predecessors in sicily robert guiscard roger ii and william i had been excommunicated as were a score of french kings mainly due to sexual misdemeanor and two english kings normally because they did not get on with their archbishop of canterbury in other words it happened in certain regularity but we're not yet at the stage where the library of salamanca declared anyone who stole a book to be automatically excommunicated and damned to hell So, excommunication was a severe sanction, but given the list above, not an existential threat to the ruler's authority. However, it was a stain that needed to be removed within a reasonable time frame. Extended terms of excommunication undermined a ruler's authority, brought about rebellions and general instability. And excommunication was not the ultimate spiritual weapon. There is the interdict, which ordered the clergy in a particular area to stop performing the holy sacraments. Namely, not to say mass, not to baptize, not to hear confession, and most importantly, not to perform the last rites. That was a lot rarer and more powerful since it impacted the population immediately. Dying without confession meant you go to purgatory, or worse. Frederick had experienced the effects of an interdict when it was placed on the city of Jerusalem right after his coronation there in 1228. Frederick himself, the actual king of Jerusalem, a city he had just regained for Christendom, had to leave immediately, otherwise his men and the population would have torn him apart. And then there is deposition. Now formally excommunication releases all vassals from their oath to the excommunicated ruler, so it is a sort of deposition. However, there had to that day only been one excommunication where the Pope had explicitly ousted a ruler. and That was Gregory the Seventh when he excommunicated Henry IV. Given the impact that had on the fate of Henry IV, the imperial chancery and the Emperor himself were very concerned that Gregory IX would go down that route. It is that fear of deposition by the Pope that forced imperial policy to change priorities, away from subduing northern Italy to getting rid of the excommunication. The excommunications could normally be remedied by a combination of resolving the alleged papal grievances and a public display of repentance. So Frederick tried that first. The excommunication of Gregory IX cited, in my counting, 12 different, very specific acts justifying the sanction. Most of those related to the treatment of bishops and abbots in the Kingdom of Sicily and the expropriation of the Knights Templar and Hospitalis. Only the last on the list is a bit wider, accusing Frederick of impeding the crusade and restoration of the Roman Empire. Now, Frederick responded immediately, saying that he had been away from Sicily for a long time and hence was not always been in control of developments, but that he would reverse all disputed acts and offer compensation. He promises everlasting obedience to the church and repentance for his sins. Now, that should have be been it, but Gregory rejects all these offers of remedy and compensation and refuses to recognize the empress's repentance as insincere. More worries were in the offing because there was an ominous end paragraph to the excommunication statement that could not easily be remedied. Because said Frederick is seriously defamed by these deeds of his, many crying out, as it were, through the whole world, that he does not entertain right opinions respecting the Catholic faith, we, with God's assistance, will proceed in this matter at its proper time and place, according to the rules of the law. Unquote. What that amounts to is nothing less than an inquisition into the emperor's faith, a process to determine whether he is a heretic. If that were to take place, Frederick knew he would be on the high seas without a rudder. It was also increasingly clear that Gregory was not to be reconciled through rational argument. Either Gregory acted upon personal animosity to Frederick, or he acted out of the deep political conviction that an emperor in control of Italy would spark the end of the imperial papacy, or it was a combination of both. Given that Gregory was unlikely to be reasoned with, Frederick implemented a new three-pronged strategy. Part one was the public relations battle, where he painted the accusations against him as false and part of a private vendetta of Gregory against him. Part two was to bring the cardinals and other senior churchmen over to his side to rein in the pope. And finally, the third element was brute military force. The PR war was the one that kicked off immediately. Key to Frederick's approach was not to blame the Church, which would have painted him as a disobedient excommunicate, but to make the Pope out as being driven by a personal hatred, abusing the Church's powers. For that, he relied heavily on the literary abilities of his Chancellor, Pietro da Vinera, wrote most of his letters and sometimes acted as the voice of his master. For example, at a royal assembly in Padua in 1239, Frederick sat on an elevated platform on his throne wearing his crown, scepter and orb, an almost motionless picture of imperial majesty, while Pietro, standing up at a dais but still lower than the emperor, would hold an oration addressing each and every point raised by Gregory and hurling accusations back. Now Pietro's letters are still seen as a prime example of medieval chancery Latin, the principal means of communication between monarchs. In these months after the excommunication, Pietro would write and send dozens, maybe hundreds of letters to all the courts and bishops of Europe in the emperor's name. Take the one to Richard of Cornwall, brother of King Henry III of England, and his brother-in-law. In the letter he goes through all the injustices that Gregory IX had inflicted on him his first excommunication when he had to turn back from the attempted crusade due to seriously ill health, his efforts to undermine his policies that ultimately led to the return of Jerusalem, his invasion of Sicily in his absence, then him spreading lies that he had died or been imprisoned in Syria, and, after the reconciliation in 1230, he had lured him without armed escort into northern Italy, putting his life at risk. And in return, he, Frederick, had always supported the Pope, Conquered the city of Viterbo on his behalf, and resolved differences with the Romans, and sought papal arbitration in the affairs of Italy. He said, quote, We know that from our acknowledgement of the Catholic faith we have found a true mother in the Church, but our father we have always found false. End quote. And then he turned the fire on the more general failings of the Pope. Gregory, he said, supported the city of Milan which was mostly inhabited by heretics, had offered marriage dispensation in exchange for cash, has been raising unjust taxes on his vassals and squandered the wealth of the church. All this in his unjust persecution of the emperor. He ends the letter to the king's brother, quote, We would have you fear that similar proceedings are impending on you in your affairs. For the humiliation of all other kings and princes is believed to be an easy matter if the power of the Caesar of the Romans is first overthrown, This letter was sent with slight alterations to all the crowned heads of Europe, telling them that this vengeful, unreasonable Pope would go after them unless they took his side. And it did have an effect. Both King Henry III of England and the increasingly influential King Louis IX of France, later Saint Louis, were intervening diplomatically on behalf of the Emperor. Now, these circulars were not only read by the great territorial rulers. They were also addressed to the princes of the church, the cardinals and the archbishops. Frederick is scrupulously distinguishing between the papal office and its current incumbent. He does not deny the apostolic dignity of the pope, but he accuses the current incumbent of being unworthy of so illustrious a throne. He essentially tries to put a wedge between the pope and his cardinals and bishops. He points out, that the excommunication was issued without the proper consultation of the College of Cardinals. He asserted that many cardinals were uncomfortable with the decision, which is why the Pope did not involve them. Now the Holy Mother Church, which Frederick, as he had said, always defended and supported, might lose the imperial protection for the act of just one man, was blinded by greed and hatred. And he did offer to submit himself to the judgment of a council of the bishops and secular lords of Europe, provided Gregory IX does the same. There was a risky move, since the church councils were by now entirely under the control of the popes. The days of Otto III, where an emperor would preside over councils and synods, were long gone. But what he proposed was something quite new. You see, ever since Gregory VII, the popes had declared themselves above the judgment of mere mortals. They were the representative of Christ on earth, so their words and deeds were that of the Lord. Likewise, the empress had refused to accept any form of authority above them in line with Roman law, though regular kneeling before the papal throne made that claim a little less robust. So, this council was by all means a very long shot. As for Gregory's response to all these letters, he went to full escalation. He declared Frederick to be the beast that rises from the sea, the Antichrist of the Book of Revelations. It is the segment you heard at the very beginning of the episode. Making Frederick out as the Antichrist caught on, mainly due to the writings of a certain Joachim of Fiore, a Cistercian abbot who had reinterpreted the Apocalypse 40 years earlier. Now in his telling, the world history breaks down into three phases. The age of the Father, which is from the creation to the birth of Christ. And that's followed by the second period, which is the one we are now in. It's the age of the Son. And that will be followed by the age of the Holy Spirit. The third age will be a time of eternal peace and bliss before the gates of paradise finally open up. Now, this idea of an age of bliss we encountered before and it was assumed it starts with the Emperor hanging up his crown at the dead tree by the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. But under Joachim of Fiore there is a twist. Between the age of the Son and the age of the Holy Spirit is the rise of the Antichrist. Only once Antichrist is defeated can the age of the Holy Spirit begin. And To make things very uncomfortable for our Frederick, Joachim of Fiore had given a very exact date, when the age of the Holy Spirit was to begin, the year 1260. We are now in the year 1239. Let's assume the defeat of Antichrist is not happening over just a fortnight. Adherents of Fiore's theories, and there were many, were on the lookout of who could be the Antichrist. A branch of the Franciscans were the most ardent believers of Joachim of Fiore, in particular as he had also invented the Order of the Just, would take over government in the age of the spirit which they modestly believed to be them the franciscans so these mendicant brothers were traveling up and down the land denouncing the emperor as antichrist in the hope of hastening the arrival of the age of bliss now to prove his point gregory added accusation over accusation of crimes some credible others pure inventions Frederick, he said, had intentionally doomed to death the crusaders in the pilgrim camp of Brindisi, had poisoned the Landgraf of Thuringia, had made peace with the Sultan in the Holy Land to the detriment of the Christians, had in his own absence directed the war against the peace-loving Pope, while for greed he allowed his own kingdom to be wasted by fire and sword. Now in response to the accusation against him personally, Gregory says that, while well, indeed, he is unworthy of such a high office. And as a human can only bear such a burden by divine assistance now this goes back to one of the fundamental constitutions of the church that the validity of sacraments is independent of the worthiness of the individual priest for instance a baptism is valid even if the priest performing it is a drunk ignorant simoniac hence an excommunication is valid even if the pope was drunk ignorant and simoniac which gregory the ninth was most decidedly not As I said before, he was either driven by personal animosity or fear of the encirclement of the papacy by an overbearing emperor, or by both. But his biggest gun, the one that will stick, is this one. This king of the pestilence had proclaimed that, to use his own words, all the world has been deceived by three deceivers, Jesus Christ, Moses and Mohammed of whom two died in honour, but Christ upon the cross. And further, he has proclaimed aloud, or rather he has lyingly declared, that all be fools who believe that God could be born of a virgin, a God who was the creator of nature and of all besides. This heresy Frederick has aggravated by the mad assertion that no one can be born, save where the intercourse of man and wife have preceded the conception. And Frederick maintains that no man should believe aught but what may be proved by the power and reason of nature. End quote. Now neither Gregory the Ninth nor his predecessors will repeat this accusation of the three deceivers at any point. Nor do they provide any evidence for its veracity. They did not need to. Their contemporaries believed it. Hook, line and sinker. Matthew Paris, otherwise often sympathetic to the emperor, repeats it. It shows up in all the other chronicles later biographies, and everywhere else. As all good, unfounded accusations, it stuck, because it was shocking, as well as just credible enough. It was credible, because Frederick's interest in science and in the things that are as they are, was well known. He had been an important European ruler for 27 years. He had continuously travelled around his realm, surrounded by exotic animals and dark-skinned attendants, His Saracen bowmen were a legend. His astrologer, Michael Scott, had found the location of heaven and hell. Sure, this man was capable of such profound heresy. And Frederick never responded directly to this accusation. Because what was there to say? If you cannot disprove it, there's only one communication strategy. The one the Queen and Kate Moss were always brilliant at. Never complain, never explain. There we are, the PR war stands at a not very stable one-to-one. Frederick got the crowned heads of Europe on his side, or at least friendly to his cause. Gregor IX has thrown so much dirt at the emperor, a lot of it is sticking in the public opinion, and the priests and monks keep repeating it from the chancels day in, day out. For the next ten years, the papal and imperial chancery will trade insults in the most elaborate medieval Latin, calling fire and brimstone on either side. Now, at some stage, Frederick compares himself to Christ and called the town of Jay-Z where he was born the New Bethlehem. Now, I just mention this because I really cannot give you any opinion on what that means. I can only tell you that, according to medievalists, that was apparently not blasphemy. Now, let's leave that war of the quilts and get on to the war of swords. Frederick's objective was not necessarily to capture the Pope, but to corner him to a point where he had to give in to pressure. That had worked well in 1230, when Gregory was forced to lift the previous excommunication. But given that public opinion amongst the princes and powerful prelates was still more like 50-50, he could not just break into Rome, take the Pope hostage and torture him until he lifts the ban, as Henry V had done. So he went softly, softly. First, he reintegrated the Mark of Ancona and the Duchy of Spoleto back into the empire little resistance. Then he took over the storied abbey of Monte Cassino, just south of Rome. The city of Viterbo, north of Rome, opened its gates to Frederick in early 1240. Slowly but surely, the imperial forces were closing in on the city of Rome and its undefended pope. Inside Rome, large parts of the population had been pro-imperial, in particular after he had given them the Carroccio of Milan as a present. Many of the great Roman families had been given positions of power and importance within the imperial apparatus, both in southern and northern Italy. On February 22nd, 1240, the Ghibelline party in Rome called for Frederick to come and take possession of his nominal capital. Gregory IX was caught. Once Frederick had peacefully entered Rome, there would be no escape. Frederick could force himself into the papal presence and when he repented and promised remediation, Gregory would have had to absolve him, as his namesake Gregory Seventh had to do at Canossa. Or Frederick could round up the cardinals, who would depose Gregory as a heretic and a spoiler of the church. So Gregory needed to do something to turn the situation around, to make the emperor unwelcome in Rome. And he did. He organized a great procession through the streets of Rome parading the relics of St. Peter and St. Paul. The procession ended in the Basilica of St. Peter. Gregory placed the skulls of the two greatest of the Apostles on the high altar. He took off the tiara, the papal crown, and he put it on the saints' heads, then knelt down and begged the people for help. Yes, me neither. But it worked. The mood inside Rome changed as if a switch had been flicked the majority of the population supported Gregory IX and began preparations for a siege. But the days when emperors dared to lay siege to the city of Rome are gone. The memory of the siege of 1167, when God's wrath wiped out the flower of the German armies and the hopes and dreams of the Hohenstaufen, was still strong. Or more prosaically, the PR effect of a prolonged and then maybe even unsuccessful siege of Rome would have been devastating. So Frederick returned to Sicily to lick his wounds. The Great War is now going into its fourth year, and his coffers are getting depleted. Sicily is a rich land, but not rich enough to easily sustain endless campaigns against equally or richer foes in the north. We're in possession of a remarkable document, the register of the letters sent and received by the Imperial Chancery in 1139.40. This is remarkable because, for most of the Middle Ages, no such complete register exists. Normally, we only have the documents that survived, but that is an often random, if not biased, selection. Having a register means, the year 1139-40 is the one year we have a really good idea about how Frederick's reign functioned. And at that point, it was creaking. The cost of warfare had made it necessary to levy higher and higher taxes on the inhabitants of Sicily. It is this shortage of funds that made him tax the clergy and sometimes raid the church treasures. Issues listed in his excommunication. Money will be a constant issue for his remaining reign. Just as costs mount, the constant demands for cash strangle economic activity and the actual tax take shrinks. His shrinking resources makes it harder and harder for him to strike a decisive blow to his enemies whilst at the same time still being sizable enough to let him keep going now back in 1241 the pope celebrated his miraculous rescue by starting a counter-offensive i mentioned last week that gregory had orchestrated an unprecedented alliance between Genoa and venice against frederick ii now I stupidly said last week that pisa joined this alliance when enzio styled himself as king of sardinia that i'm afraid is simply not true I know that i read this somewhere but i cannot find where i have read that and it does not matter where i read it because well, it did not happen so i do apologize for the record the pisans never betrayed their beloved emperor frederick ii but that still left the great maritime republics of venice and genoa not only are they each very powerful they're also on two different sides of the italian peninsula Venice on the Adriatic, and Genoa on the Tyrrhenian Sea. Sicily has an enormous coastline, leaving hundreds of places either navy could sack cities or capture vessels. Now Frederick has his own fleet. he is the first and only medieval emperor ever to possess one. And he had a maritime ally, Pisa. Hence, in the initial period of the campaign, the Pisans were meant to hold back the Genoese on the western shore, while the Sicilian fleet defended the eastern shore. Naval warfare at the time had more in common with piracy than seeking decisive sea battles. The objective was to capture enemy trading vessels and sell their cargo back home and occasionally sack a harbour city. The fortunes of war oscillated, sometimes the Sicilians were ahead, at other times the Venetians. But what definitely suffered was trade between the East and the Kingdom of Sicily, adding to Frederick's money problems. Now, that would have gone on for a decade just as a background noise to the broader scenario, was it not for the second strategic initiative of Pope Gregory IX in 1241. You may remember that Frederick had called for a general council of the church to decide on the accusation raised against both Pope and Emperor. That turned out to be a bad idea. Because Pope Gregory hijacked the idea and tweaked it. No longer a gathering all of Europe to amicably resolve the situation, It was meant to be attended only by his allies and bring forth the formal deposition of the excommunicated Emperor Frederick II. Frederick had to prevent this council from happening at any price. Because once a formal deposition has been declared, God knows what will happen. So he had the Alpine passes blocked, refused safe conduct to anyone crossing his territories, and prohibited anyone from his kingdoms to go to Rome for the council. And he declared a sea blockade, announcing that he would have any ship boarded that transported delegates to the synod. This must be the only time a naval operation was set up, explicitly, to prevent a church council. Now, despite Frederick's express threats, many English, French, Spanish and Burgundian prelates still embarked on the arduous journey to Rome that gathered in Nice where Genoe's fleet was waiting for them. They first brought them to Genoa, where they were joined by bishops and abbots from northern Italy. On april twenty fifth, twelve forty one, a fleet of thirty war galleys carrying almost a hundred senior prelates, leaves the harbour of Genoa, with the destination of Civita Vecchia, near Rome. Meanwhile, a combined Pisan and Imperial fleet gathered south of the island of Alba keeping an eye on the likely route the Genoese would take. The Imperial fleet that was waiting may well have counted as many as 60 galleys, i twice as many as the Genoese. Hiding such a mass of ships was not easy, and so the Genoese admiral was soon informed that the enemy was waiting for them. But he made no use of this information. He did not wait for reinforcements to come down from Genoa, nor did he alter his route to circumvent the Imperial fleet that was patrolling between the islands of Giglio Monte Cristo. If the name Giglio rings a bell, it's the island where in 2012 the cruise liner Costa Concordia sank with 3,229 passengers on board after hitting a rock, allegedly because the captain wanted to show his girlfriend where he was from. A bit further west from there is the island of Monte Cristo, better known from Alexandre Dumas' novel. Sorry, I digress. So, we have the Genoese fleet heading straight into the Imperial Trap. Not only are they outnumbered, but their galleys are also slower than the Sicilian ones. That had less to do with the strength of the rowers, who by the way in the Middle Ages were not slaves but professionals. The difference was hull speed. As a boat goes through the water, it generates its own standing wave that slows it down. The resistance of the wave depends on the length and the shape of the hull. The longer and the more slender the hull, the faster the galley. Frederick ordered his galleys to be longer than his enemies, up to 40 meters or 120 feet, which is seriously long and very slender. Medieval galleys also differed from Roman galleys in another way. Romans did not like or understand naval warfare. So they replicated land-based war on the sea. Their galleys had fighting platforms forward that connected to enemy ships so that the legionaries could slug it out like on dry land. Medieval galleys were more in the Greek tradition. They had above-waterline battering rams designed to strike and sink an enemy ship. And that gets us to the Battle of Monte Cristo, May 3, 1241. The prelates on board of the Genoese ships were waking up and are told the journey is almost over. By evening they should be in Civitavecchia and safely on their way to Rome. But then in the morning mist, the masts of the imperial galleys appear on the horizon. Here is how Frederick himself described the battle in a letter to the kings and princes of Europe. Quote, after three of their galleys had been sunk, together with everything on board of them, and after losing about two thousand men without hope of recovery, twenty-two galleys were, by the will of divine providence, conquered by our galleys, and, after great slaughter amongst their crew, were triumphantly taken, together with all the property and everyone on board. In these galleys were the three aforesaid four set legates, with the archbishops, bishops, abbots, and many other prelates, besides messengers and proxies of prelates to the number of about a hundred, with the embassies from the rebellious cities of Lombardy, who were proceeding to the said council. And all these fell into our hands as prisoners, together with the bishop of Preneste, who had often excited the chief hatred against us. Let this man, who carries the form of a wolf under the exterior of a sheep, refrain from thinking that he carries God in his heart, for we think that it is God's special judgment that has fallen upon him. Let him learn that God is with us, sitting on his throne to judge between evil and good. End quote. A resounding success. This was the worst defeat of the Maritime Republic of Genoa in the entirety of the Middle Ages. The beast that had indeed risen out of the sea and gulped up a whole church council. Amongst the captured were three papal legates, the archbishops of Rouen, Bordeaux and Auch, the bishops of Carcassonne, Agde, Nîmes, Tortona, Asti and Pavia, the abbots of Citeau, Clairvaux, Cluny, Fécamp, and many more. The archbishop of Besançon sadly drowned. The council could not take place. Frederick's immediate military and political objectives were achieved. He also managed to take the small city of Faenza, one of the brighter aspects of his Lombard campaign. All in 1241. So next question, what to do with all these prelates? In the first step he has them shipped out into his kingdom and then incarcerated separately in various castles. But what now? Keep them on dry bread and artificial honey until Gregory caves in? Send them home on the promise of supporting Frederick from now on? And what would public opinion make of an emperor who locks up a sea of bishops. And then we have a true threat to the European way of life appearing on the horizon, the Mongols. And Jerusalem has fallen. And the Latin emperors of Constantinople have been overthrown. Is that enough to shift the Pope's gaze away from the emperor he so hates and fears? All that we'll talk about next week. I hope you will join us again. And I also hope that next week my voice will be back to normal. Now, before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you this show does not have to pretend that Airbnb is a force for good in a country with a housing crisis. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly, which I now understand is how most of you have found the show in the first place. Or you could boost its recognition on social media, If you share, comment or retweet a post from the History of the Germans, it's more likely to be seen by others. Hence, bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes.